If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Maybe you've heard it said, and I mean this in no derogatory sense, but maybe you've heard it described this way that men have waffle brains and women have spaghetti brains. Just describing how uh, men and women operate uh, in relationships and as they view the world. Maybe you've observed that uh, generally men have this, I think, God given ability to compartmentalize things. While women, uh, if you could say on the other side, have this God-given ability to relate everything to everything else. And those, uh, as perhaps you've seen, can uh, present strengths and weaknesses in maybe a time of crisis. A man, kind of as a rule, might be able to shut out, focus on the task at hand and accomplish it and conquer it. Um, Whereas maybe in a time of concern, a, a woman, as you've observed this, just seemingly show limitless amounts of compassion due to their, their ability to just think about this person constantly, despite whatever else they're doing. Think about the humorous side of this, if it's humorous. Maybe in a close relationship, maybe in a marriage, we can get ourselves into trouble. Men can see that this incident, this discussion, this argument, whatever, is completely isolated from everything else in the relationship. And they end up insisting that it be treated that way, and we need to deal with this problem. And you can't talk about that. That was yesterday. Where are the waffle? And then sometimes we can have conflict, right? Because our competing desires. But in that instance, women can be connected to everything else in the relationship. And, you know, maybe you think of a dating relationship that can end up tying the whole relationship to that one incident. And really there's, there can be conflict over this, right? There's strengths and weaknesses. And probably the answer is that we need both. Often we need to see the connections. Often we need to see things in a, from each other. There are times for both. That's God's design and and at least in marriage, that's part of how we can complement one another, grow and seeing the world. And I really don't mean that in a disparaging way, just kind of an interesting way to think about the world. There really is an incredible amount of variety and interest in the ways that God has and even in the ways that he's designed men and women to be different from one another. I want to make a connection in our minds, kind of like that spaghetti strand. These two things that seem disconnected in some people's minds are I want to make a connection in our minds that we don't always make. Sometimes we keep things apart from one another. And Paul here in 1 Thessalonians 5 brings them together. And I want us to see that connection. The connection between our faith before God and the health of faith before God and the health of our relationships. Health of our faith and the health of our interpersonal relationships. I want to connect these. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Near the end of the letter here, Paul turns to three key relationships. Which the urgency of being right in those relationships. You've been with us for some time. I started a series in 1 Thessalonians 5 over the summer. 
tried to finish it. We actually started this sermon in November, sermon entitled Healthy Flock Relationships. This is actually part two of that sermon. Healthy Flock Relationships. And Paul is trying to show this church here at the end, his final words as he closes this letter, the urgency of being right in three key relationships that we have in our lives. And the urgency is is that the health of these relationships really is connected of their faith. That's been a theme in his letter. How strong is your faith? Will it be able to resist the way coming against your faith? Why is he writing this? Acts, Paul visited the, the city of Thessalonica in the first century and ministered there, saw people saved as he was preaching the gospel. And there was a church that started, but very soon after just a few weeks, maybe a few months, there was persecution that arose. Jews who were trying to kill the apostle Paul because he was a Christian. They chased him out of town and Paul ended up leaving. His disciples said, Paul, you got to go, you got to leave. But what he left all of those people who lived there. They had businesses, families there. They've just been converted, and now their life's a train wreck. Have you experienced this? Perhaps you've read the testimony of someone who's come to the Lord out of a lot of sin, and it's not a pretty story. Their life is just a wreck. They're having a lot of relationships and a lot of activity, and there's a train wreck. And then as they start to piece their lives back together, those people are hostile towards them. And, you know, maybe in not a willing trade partner, you know, and and you're struggling financially now and your families turn their back on you. They don't really even want to acknowledge you anymore. That's what Paul's left behind. And Paul's now writing them this letter, probably one of his first letters. Encourage them to say, don't forget that what you believed, what I taught you was the real thing. There might've been people there who were saying, look at that guy. First sign of trouble, he's gone. Do you really believe him? Was he a fake? Was he a fraud? How about his message? You see the kind of pressure they're facing? What if Paul was telling us a lie? What if we believe something that wasn't really true? Paul points their attention to, no, look at the change in your life. Look at people who said, no, this is the real deal. Look at what God saved them from. He's really setting their minds on, we ministered there by God's grace, and it was the real deal. He's comforting them. He's building them up in their faith. He's saying, there are a few more things that I wanted to tell you about that I didn't get a chance. That if you don't know these things, it could really undermine your faith. I've used this illustration a few times in this series of a large tree. And the biggest tree that I can think of that I see with some regularity is the one in my backyard. It is this massive oak tree. is that God preserves those. The way that the tree, the plant of your life is going to persevere through the pressures of life is as its root. Because when the wind blows, you need something. You need some strength. And God is going to do that as he sanctifies you. Today, what I want you to see is that God sanctifies us in our relationships. And it's important that we heed this because it contributes to the strength of our faith, because there's going to be pressures that come. And what are these key relationships? And how am I making this connection to sanctifying them? Look at verse 23 of chapter 
5, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. This is actually the verse after our passage for this morning. How does he conclude this letter? I want you to see this theme that's been throughout the whole letter. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved, complete. God's preserving you without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. That's how he concludes. And the reason he concludes that way is because everything in the last few chapters has been about how to sanctify you, what you need to give your attention to in your life so that you can be growing. Because God loves you as he sanctifies you. And we all need sanctified in our relationships. And the relevance of this to us is that if you're a child of God, you have faith that needs to endure. And these particular relationships need to improve. All of us in process. No one can be indifferent to this message because opposition will come to And the devil is not going to leave any stone unturned in trying to undermine people's faith. He's a lion, like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Do you think he's going to see the rock of relationships and leave it unturned just because he wants to give you a break? No, he wants to destroy you. Nobody can be indifferent to this because opposition comes against our faith, and it may come in this form. But also, God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. The reason Paul ends his letter that way. Because even as we need to give our attention to these things, who is going to be the one who completes sanctifying us? Is it going to be us? God. You who he called, he justified. You who he justified, he sanctified and he glorified. God does all this. That's our assurance that even as we must be obedient, God is doing the work. He's given us everything for life and godliness, for stability and health, and growth. And part of what he's given us is other people in the body. He's given us relationships. He's given us people who can help us tend to these so that our faith grows strong and stays stable in times of trouble. But what are these relationships? What must be in order to stay strong? Let's read starting in verse 12. See, he talks about sheep. That sheep should honor their shepherds. Sheep should love one another. We're going to start kind of. And then sheep should submit to God. God's word says, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Ways. Pray without ceasing give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good from every form 
of evil. I won't re-preach the message that I began back around Thanksgiving time, but I'll just review for catching the flow of the passage. They should honor their shepherds. We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate, that you know, labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Know them, appreciate them. Verse 13, that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Honor those that God has given you as he's saying to this church and do it in love because of their work. I was looking back through my notes. I, I came across something. It doesn't say esteem them and honor them on account of their perfection and praise God that it doesn't because who could do that? There's no pastor who's perfect but God has given them a work to do. If you read Ephesians chapter four, God equips the church with apostles, some prophets, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ. So God has given a pastor, a shepherd to a church to build up God's people so that they can minister to each other so that the whole church can be edified and built up and that we can grow in Christ likeness. God has given gifts to the church in the form of people. And the Bible says, teaching. You could turn to the Old Testament for the idea of, of shepherds and God promises, even in Israel, that God will give his people shepherds after his own heart. And if the Lord has done that, praise the Lord. That's his work. That's his grace. A verse, a few verses as we think about a membership class coming up. Verse that I've really come to appreciate. In our membership, Hebrews 13, first and verse seven. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you and consider, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. And if you've joined here, you've probably been asked the question, are you willing to something like, are you willing to submit to the leadership of the Church of Falls, uh, leadership of Fallsbury and Bible Church in the spirit of Hebrews 13, 17? What does Hebrews 13, 17 say? Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your soul as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. Obey, submit. What's the reason? They keep watch over your soul like a sentry at night. It really carries the idea of losing sleep over someone to watch out and to be on, on the lookout. Why would somebody lose? This is how God designed it. This is what God is. It's his wisdom for our good. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. I was thinking this morning, as I was reading the book of Isaiah and God is pronouncing all of these prophecies and judgments against all of these nations. Some in the, in the near present, some in the far future, God rules over all of these leaders and they might spend their whole life refusing to acknowledge up at the throne of God. They're going to have to give an account for how they use the authority that God gave them. That goes for presidents, kings, parents, pastors. They give an account. 
That's a sober thing. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. Can you honor your pastor with joy? As you as you submit to their leadership, their their godly leadership, and as you're imitating their faith, may the Lord help us to do that for our profit. If we do it, if we live our lives in such a way that our leaders are watching over us with grief and they really are losing sleep over you, there's no profit in that for you. That's bad for you. Sheep should honor their shepherds. They should know them. They should fellowship with them. They should know and be known. They should appreciate them, esteem them, and honor them. And I truly, as I see that in our church, but I would leave the weight of what Paul is saying with us. We request of you, brethren, that you would do this. This relationship needs to be in order. And if you think about it for yourself, find an opportunity against your faith if your relationship with your pastor is not in order. If you are a sheep who is resisting his shepherd, are you vulnerable to... Do you see the importance of this to our lives? This relationship needs to be in order. God has given us people, pastors, also others, to the church for its good so that we can be built up, so that we can be strengthened in our faith. This is, this is God's design in the church. And that relationship should be right for our faith to be strong. God gives shepherds to the church for the good of his people. And we, we should relate to the shepherd God has given us in a humble, can I say, easy, receptive way for the good of our souls. If we're doing otherwise, we're, we're making ourselves vulnerable. We're weakening ourselves. We're asking for spiritual injury. But it's not just toward our shepherd, Paul says. We should also relate to one another in a loving way. We should love one another. What does he say at the end of verse 13? Live in peace with one another. You should be at peace for all. And we got into a few of these in November. He says, this is towards everyone, be at peace. Category, it seems, that Paul makes of the, the spiritually needy. We need to be in right relationship with other sheep who might have needs. And what are the needs? Verse 14, we urge you, admonish the unruly. Admonish forward. Warn those disciplined or rebellious, he's saying. And maybe that person who keeps warned them. And I would point out to you, who is Paul writing to? Is he writing to the pastor of this church or is he writing to the church? We urge you, brethren, admonish, plural, the unruly. This is a responsibility that we all bear toward each other, okay? These are. This isn't just the pastor's job. This is part of watching out for each other. Admonish the unruly. I said, encourage the fearful. Encourage the faint-hearted, the, the, those with little soul those who are just easily discouraged, easily discouraged, encourage them, help 
the weak. This, uh, this idea of help is, has the idea of hold on to. Like, like somebody who's got an injury in a race and they need someone to come alongside of them and hold on to them so they don't fall. Embrage the spiritually frail. Those who would easily be broken off at the stem. Hold on to them. Don't let go of them. This is how God treats his people. He doesn't put out a, a smoldering wick, right? He deals gently with those who are frail. And Paul is saying, treat others in this way. Love them. We can love one another, those who are unruly. That's love. We can love one another as we encourage those who are easily discouraged, as we hold on to those who are spiritually frail. And where we ended last time, I've described it this way. Be patient with everyone or endure the frustrating. Wait with those needs. What does he say here at the end? Be patient with everyone. This is kind of a, an umbrella term here. No exceptions. Be patient. Endure. Take time. Maybe you've heard the illustration of having a short fuse versus having a long fuse. You know, if in the cartoons, when somebody wants to light up a stick of dynamite, right? They want to have a really long fuse so they can light it and get far away. Are you a person with a long fuse or a short fuse? When there's something in your life that puts a match to the fuse in your life, are you blowing up very quickly? Or is there, is there a, a, a big delay? Are you long suffering? Endure the frustrating. But he says, be patient with everyone. So that's everyone without exception. But in the context, it seems that he's talking especially about those who are in positions of spiritual need. Be patient, endure those who are given to unruliness, given to fear, or who are weak and fragile in their faith. And if I could illustrate it this way, did you, maybe when you were in high school or if you are in high school, did you ever get frustrated with the rebel in your class at school because he demanded all the attention and he got all the attention? Or the person who just couldn't figure it out and the teacher kept having to explain the same thing to them over and over again. And it's just like, won't you just get the picture? You know, that, that's a needy person, maybe academically, maybe in maturity or something like that. Well, Paul is be patient, even with those who have needs, who are given to whatever proclivity they have. Someone who stands out in my mind in this way is actually Teddy Roosevelt. If you know, if you know much about him, I listened to a biography some time ago. Maybe we think of him as the, what was he, commander or something? in the Spanish-American War. And then as the president, he's, you know, has his hand in all these national parks and things like this. He's this rough and manly, strong, wilderness conqueror kind of guy. But if you read his biography, he, as a boy, he had a very frail constitution, very weak. He had debilitating asthma that really required the rearrangement of his family's entire life. And there, Again, where he and his dad would drive into the country because that was the only thing that seemed to help him was getting out of the city. And he just felt the world really did have to revolve around him. And if maybe you were from a family like that, you what do we say in our society? The squeaky wheel gets the grease. Did I even get that right? Right? It's it's easy to be frustrated, to grow impatient. So I would ask you do, you, do you know someone who is often fearful? 
who isn't as willing as you are to jump into new things, maybe even like a new spiritual venture. They're just, they tend to respond to that. Just, are you dismissive of their fears? Do you write them off? Are you going to give up on them? Do you know someone who often needs to get back line? Are you easily frustrated with their lack of self-discipline and the fact that somebody really always has to be telling them to do the right thing? Or do you know somebody who is weaker than you spiritually, who doesn't? What, what do we mean by this? Spiritually frail, spiritual weakness. Maybe they don't turn from sin as quickly as you do. Maybe you've come to a point in your life where you realize, okay, I sinned and I just need to turn from it. And you do, and you, you get back on the right road and you do that quickly. And the Lord has worked in your life to bring you to that point of maturity. Maybe you know someone who just, and they just, uh, and they give up and they get discouraged and they continue in sin and they don't really turn from it. It can be frustrating. Or maybe somebody who doesn't do what they know they should do. You know, I know I should do that, but that, that's spiritual weakness. How do you respond to someone like that? Won't you just get the picture? Won't you just help yourself? I think if we admit it, we probably all thought things like that. And that's why we need to hear, be patient with everyone. Which of us doesn't need to hear that? I know some very patient people in this church. <laughs> but we all need to hear it. Be patient with people whose faith is beset with weakness. And I would say this, patience isn't enablement. I'm not talking about being indifferent to those weaknesses. I'm not talking about being angry. Patience is long suffering, bearing with those weaknesses, letting your fuse, like I said, be long with them rather than short. So when you see another sign of fear or rebellion or, or touchiness or just weakness, taking that with the help of the spirit, not to retaliate or to criticize, but to bear with and to pray and to help. Patience, if you know 1 Corinthians 13, patience is love. Love is, what's the first one? Patient. Love is kind. That's why I say, Sheep must love one another. Love knows that, you know, I'm sinful too. I was there. Love is understanding. Love is willing to listen and to minister words of grace and life rather than words of death and, and condemnation. Be patient, Paul said. But then he says, verse 15, See that no one repays another with evil for evil. Why do you think he says this next? Maybe because people are sinning against me. But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. I've, I've called it this. Examine the vengeful. Watch out for vengeance. Watch out for it. It's easy to spot when you're the recipient of it. When someone is being vengeful is it sometimes hard to be honest about doing things, even if you even if doing it in a in a kind and gracious way, kind of on the surface, you're doing it from a heart that is a little vengeful? Watch out for it. See to it that. That's what that means. Watch. 
watch out that no one, no one in your sphere of influence, make sure as far as it depends on you that this is not happening among those that you can influence. It surely ought not to be happening in the church. Paying back evil or evil. So someone against you, someone sins, and that happens all the time, right? Have you ever met someone who's not a sinner? They do something sinful against you and you keep the receipt, you pay them back in full, maybe with interest. That's what vengeance is. Against anyone, it is a complete prohibition against vengeance. There are no exceptions. Why? Do not take your own revenge because it's not your prerogative. You're not the judge. It's not suitable for anybody. It's certainly not suitable for Christians. It's not your role in the world. It is God's prerogative alone. Vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay. So what's our role in the world? It's to take it. It's to love. Some of the most captivating stories, at least to me, might be ones that are, are full of revenge. You know, this person said this, this person ruined me in this way. This person accused me of this. They set me up for this embarrassment or this crime or something. And, you know, maybe this, this character goes to jail or is exiled or whatever. And they spend years plotting revenge. And then they come back. And there's just something inside of us that loves that, right? Oh, yeah, that was awesome. He got him. And it's just like this reversal of all of these things. And I think there's something a little bit God-given about that. That we want, we just want justice, don't we? We long for it. And I think God's justice is going to be that satisfying and more. But what's the problem with that? It's, it's vengeance. It's vengeance. It's people doing it. Those are stories of revenge, repaying evil with evil. God doesn't have evil. God's just going to judge righteously. It's going to be pure justice. And it'll be satisfying and probably sobering. So watch out for this. Again, I would repeat, this is a responsibility that we all bear. It's addressed to the whole church, and I want to address it to the whole church. If you hear about this going on in families, in marriages, in the church, anywhere, it needs addressed. You bear the responsibility to do something about that. We could talk at length about what that means and how to go about it, but you can't remain indifferent about vengeance. But that also means watch out for it in yourself. Do you have vengeance in your heart? Do you ever do things out of spite towards someone else? Is bitterness a form of vengeance? Is the cold shoulder a form of vengeance? Is, is withholding something in a relationship a form of vengeance? Well, you did this to me, so do we do this? Watch out. See to it that no one, not you, not me, not anybody else that you know, takes revenge. And maybe you'd say, why won't, why won't you just leave me alone about this? What's the big deal? It matters. It's sin. And it'll ruin you both. It'll ruin you. The world's worst prison, I came across this quote once. Forgiving heart. And the Bible says, see to it that it's not going on. 
if you're doing this, you are weak. Relationships are not right. It's a recipe for a shipwreck. You need to be reconciled with that person. That's the answer. And you can be. That's, that's what we've been hearing on Sunday mornings, the first Sunday of the month, when pastor's preaching through Matthew 18. We can be reconciled, right? Why? Because we have just this inexhaustible fountain of grace within ourselves that we can just draw from and say, oh, that wasn't a big deal. No, because Christ forgave us, right? We've been forgiven an insurmountable debt. We can forgive. What is Paul's instruction? This really is the next step. I said, examine the vengeful, but... Paul goes on, always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. This doesn't really flow as nicely, but just kind of in the alliteration of what I've said, exchange with virtue. Pursue after that. After that which is good. This word is is sometimes actually translated persecute, like Paul, when he's on the road to Damascus. He's got these letters in hand. He's chasing after Christians. He's got a zeal about him. He's pursuing them. He's seeking them. And fervency about what he's doing. Pursue what is and beneficial and profitable unto one another. That's in the church. And toward all. That's outside the church. So what's good for one another? Don't take vengeance, but pursue what's good. What is he talking about most immediately? What's, what's good for us? Being right with one another. Being right with God. Because when somebody sins against you and you're tempted to take vengeance, that relationship's not right. That needs restored. But they sinned by sinning. They sinned against God. They need to be right with God. That's what's good for them. And pursuing what's good for that person zealously is persuasion in that relationship and in this one. That's what's good. Maybe a passage that comes to mind is Romans chapter 12. This is just a really good one for us to know. I'd encourage you 12. Excuse me, Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 12. I was in 1 Corinthians. Romans 12, 14. These are good words for all of us. Bless those who persecute you. Romans 12, 14. Bless, not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with, be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. So doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not buy evil. It's a command. But overcome evil with good. Don't lose. Is persecuting with you with evil. Who who persecutes? Sometimes it's unchristian uh, unbelievers who are persecuting, you know, us for our in our own house. We're just 
sowing words of discord. Don't lose. Do not be overcome by evil. You got to win. The devil wants evil to rule in the church and in the home and in the world. He wants sin to conquer in the church. But God says, don't lose. Don't be overwhelmed with the evil of others by responding with your own evil. That's what losing looks like. You're a loser if you do that. You've lost. Rather, win. Overcome evil with good. Sins against you, it's a devilish response to come back in kind or to come back with interest. But the Christian response is not to give in to the sinful desires of your flesh, but to conquer that person's evil with your own good toward them. So when somebody, they pull out this pistol of criticism, you pull out the machine gun of genuine, humble thankfulness. Not sarcastic, not ironic, not vindictive, genuine, humble thankfulness for that person. Maybe it's, maybe it's your spouse. When they pull out a bazooka of angry, bitter words, you roll in that Abram tank of peaceful, forgiving, grace-filled words. You've got to win. Be ready. You might have to think about it ahead of time. You know, I know that this happens every time when I come in, this gets said. What am I going to say? How am I going to win? How am I going to overcome with good? And that, that works two ways. You towards others, if you're being sinned against, you should think about, think about, hey, like if, if you're the person who's not in sin and this is the person who is spiritually weak, they're resorting to sin again and again. But you also need to think about yourself. Am I doing this? Am I in any of these categories? Do I need to watch out for my own spiritual compromise? Do I need to get right with the Lord? But then also, even as we think about relating rightly to a pastor, realize that a a pastor who is keeping watch over your soul for your good, realize that he might be bringing some of this up with you to help you get right, to help you gain strength spiritually. So sheep need to relate to their shepherd in a healthy way and towards one another in a loving way. And ultimately, to be spiritually healthy, We need to relate to God in a right way. This is the third. Two. Sheep must submit to God. And in these verses, of course, we could spend time and there's a lot of good food for thought here. But I'll just go over them kind of in a positive way and then a negative way. As you submit to God and negatively, what does that forbid? What does he say first in verse 16? Rejoice always. Rejoice. Well, this is before God. Rejoice always. Be glad at all times. Pray without requests to God. Pray constantly to God. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Recognize God in everything. Thank him for his providence in your life. These are all commands. These are all things God expects his people to do. These are all plural. They're all for the whole one of us. We all have the responsibility for this. 
So for our growth, don't we all need to grow in being glad in all kinds of circumstances? Unless you think I'm standing up here and indifferent to this, the Lord was ministering to this to me, even in, in sickness, you know, it can just be, it, sometimes it's annoying. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's depressing. I don't know what your response to sickness is, but it's hard to, to rejoice. It's hard to pray. It's hard to be thankful for that. And I was reminded even in the past few weeks, I need to grow in this. We all do. We need to grow in being glad in all kinds of circumstances. We all need to grow in praying in all kinds of circumstances. We all need to grow in thanking God in all kinds of circumstances. What does David say in Psalm 119? Before afflicted, I went astray. Sometimes the Lord brings these things into our lives to teach us. Maybe he's teaching us to rejoice and to pray and to be thankful. Has the Lord ever taught you that? We need to be learning. Maybe you'd say, yes, I want that. But how? How do I do this? Well, are you rightly related to God? Do you fellowship with God? Uh, are you a Christian? Have you believed in Jesus Christ for salvation? Have you turned from your sin? I don't want to assume that today. But do you fellowship with God throughout the week? And you know, you, you might not have a more an hour every morning. Maybe you have kids or something. But do you do you just talk to God? Do you long to be with God? Do you express that to God? I'd encourage you to relate to God throughout the day. Uh, just. See things in your life as, okay, God is doing this right now. Not, oh, this happened. God, okay, God did that. Lord, thank you for this. Would you help me with this? That, that's, that's relating to God in a really good way. Even if you don't have time to, you know, I'm going to spend three hours in the morning reading my Bible. I would encourage you to do that if you can. But ask God for help to see him all throughout your life. Maybe, maybe as a family, start, start taking notes of blessings and answers to prayer in your life seeing connection points between your life and God's providence. And when you see God's providence, call it that. Call it that. Oh, well, we're lucky that that happened. God did this in our lives. That will really change you when you start calling it that. This is all part of how we humble ourselves before God and enjoy his goodness to us, even in the most difficult of circumstances. So positively, We'll keep moving along. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. This is God's will. This is God's will for those, for you in Christ Jesus. And we need to submit to God in that way by doing these things. And I, I hope even just the mention of them, even briefly, brings it to the forefront of our minds that, yeah, God does expect me. To, God does expect me to pray. And who can't do this more? But that's part of a right relationship with God that will strengthen our faith as we give attention to those things. But then next, there are a few ways we need to submit to God by, by what God forbids. Negatively, I've said, douse not, disdain not, and dabble not. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Abstain from every form of evil. Don't douse the spirit. Don't despise the word as it's preached. And don't dabble with sin. This is part of a right relationship with God. First, he says, quench not 
the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. This it's the idea of it's it's almost always used in relation to fire. Don't extinguish it. Don't put it out. Certainly, it implies a responsiveness, at least, of the Holy Spirit to what we're doing in a Christian. God has given you the gift of the Holy Spirit in you permanently. And the Holy Spirit responds to how you live your life. Uh, there's a, a similar statement in Ephesians 4. Uh, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. There, it's, it's in the context of our words. If we're, if we're spewing angry, venomous words, we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God in us. Here, what's the context? We're talking about relationships. We're talking about prayer. Next, he's about to talk about responding to God's word. So what? Being out of fellowship with God, being out of fellowship with his people, despising God's word. Maybe you could ask it in the opposite way. What, what fans the spirit's work into flames in our lives? You know, if you've ever cooked on a charcoal grill what do you need to do once you get those things lit you've you just got to give them air right they need to they need to be fanned into flames and they need to 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 catch that maybe they need gas too or a building fire or building a, a campfire what do you need you need oxygen to feed the flames what's going to feed the flames of the spirit in our lives look at mentions of this quenching this grieving of the spirit you would see that love toward others fans the Spirit's flames into our lives. Prayer, praying in all circumstances. Even as he says, do not despise prophetic utterances. Responding to the word. So but how, can we, how can we cooperate with the Spirit and walk in the Spirit? We can do those things. But what would douse Spirit's ministry to us? What would choke it out? Certainly there are a number of ways, but it's at least do not despise prophetic utterances. If we treat God's word as it's preached and as it's applied with contempt, we can quench the spirit. That means if we act as an authority over God's word, if we we treat the, the, the right application of scripture to us as worthless or inferior, or if we, if we doubt that what God's word clearly says doesn't really apply to us, or if we ignore, if you ignore the things that God is prompting you to do and to change in your life as you sit under faithful preaching, I believe you can quench the spirit. And why specifically God's word? Preached and applied, and that's how I'm interpreting this, prophetic utterances. Why is responding in this way such a grief to the Spirit? I believe it's because the glorious ministry of the Spirit is to draw attention to Jesus Christ. I will send another helper, Jesus told his disciples, who will bring to your remembrance all things that I taught you. That was his promise to the disciples in the upper room. What's the rest of the New Testament? All the things that the Spirit that Jesus taught. 
So what is the Bible? It is the teaching of Jesus. The spirit word. Of course, Jesus didn't teach all of the Old Testament, but it's God's word. In the beginning was the word. Can't ignore God's word. The spirit really honors Christ to his people. And the spirit, he works by causes people to think about the words and the teachings of Jesus as contained in the Bible. The Old and the New Testament. So to ignore the teaching and the preaching of the word is really to, to spit on the very precious ministry of the spirit in your life. If I could illustrate it this way, that, that would be like if you're married, your wife's spending all day preparing a really special date for you that night, making your favorite meal, getting you a gift you really like, planning the whole evening around you and everything she knew you would want. She devoted herself to this and then you came home and ignored it. You never responded in love. You never reciprocated her love. You totally doused ever she devoted herself to with her whole day. What do you think would happen? That's just totally going to discourage her. I believe that's what we do to the indwelling Holy Spirit when we ignore the preaching of God's word and God's working in our hearts by his word. Just roll our eyes at what really loving and gracious service and ministry that the spirit is doing for us. And that has an effect. It has an effect on people. It has an effect on the Holy Spirit. So if you have that kind of heart, watch out. You're not right with God. It's God's word. Don't ignore that. If you sense that in your heart, turn from it. Repent. There's forgiveness. And then he says, disdain not. Don't despise, but examine everything careful, carefully. Hold fast. Abstain from every form of evil. Those Jews in the Bible, in, in Berea, who scoured the word to see if what Paul was saying was true, after which we are named. Paul's Berean Bible Church. They were. I'd encourage you test what is preached, to see it, if it passes the test of. Hide. Does the Bible really instruct me to do that? Is that a good and appropriate application from Scripture? Not not with a, a proud and critical attitude of, you know, I know better than the pastor, and I he's probably lying to me, probably just trying to control me. No. Evaluate with. God, please open my eyes. I don't want to believe something that's false. And I know that you've given me a pastor and I want to follow him. But your word is sure. There's no man who's in fact. Lord, I want to see your word. Please minister to me. Help me to do this. I want. Every effort to implement that into your life by God's grace and the help of the Holy Spirit, God will help you. Paul says, hold fast to what is good. If you do that and you see that, yes, this is true, you need to do this. Even if it was delivered in a frail and stumbling way, hold fast to it. God. So when you, in that calls you to make a change or to obey in 
let me ask you this question. Is it your habit first to confess your sin that you hadn't been obeying God? Also to pray and to ask God to help you change in that area. Is that your habit when you, when you see something in the word? If it is, praise the Lord for that. Giving you a tender heart. That's a good and godly thing. And it's humble. And that's, that's sensitivity to the work of the spirit. That's a blessing. There will be blessing in your life for that. But then finally, he says, abstain from every form of evil. Avoid it. Steer clear of it. That's the word abstain. God is interested in the holiness of his people. Do you know that? Let's read the Old Testament. There's a lot of time spent on that. And we're not under the law. We're still in the same thing. We are God's chosen people, holy unto him. So what's your attitude towards sin? Is it, is it your paradigm to think in terms of the choices of your life? Is this pleasing to God or not? Is that a paradigm for you? As, as you think, okay, how am I going to spend my time? How am I going to relate to people? Is this pleasing to God or not? That's a good place to start. Or maybe I could ask it this way. When you think about your sins against, let's just say other people. What word comes to mind when you think of how you've sinned? Do you, do you tend to think of, oh, I made a mistake? Or do you think more in terms of that was treacherous? That was betrayal? Because how does God view sin? It's not a big deal. God hates sin. God hates sin. Abstain from every form of evil. Christians deal seriously and severely with their sin. They don't make room for the flesh. They don't get close to it. That's not how a healthy Christian acts. Driving on the road and you see all of these people. I was on my way up to Menor some months ago to visit my parents. And we were on night, see a car on the side of the road with a flat tire and people around it. And then a car on the side of the road with a flat tire, people around it. And a car on the side of the road. I'm like, what is going on? And I see something in the road in front of me. What am I going to do? I'm not going to stay in that lane. I'm going to steer far clear of that, right? Steer clear of sin. Take it seriously. Don't dabble with it. If you do, watch out. That's not a hell. That's not a submitted relationship to God. That's not showing concern for what God thinks of your life. Be vulnerable spiritually. So as, as things in our world get increasingly dangerous and just immoral, maybe frightening, you ever find yourself wondering how you're going to make it? How you're... I know I do. Have you ever been, how could, how, how am I going to be able to stay faithful to God in all I believe Paul is answering those questions in this book and in part in this final section. God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Part of his design for the Christian life is the church. God equips the church with people who are gifted and they're to minister to one another for the, the, the spiritual good of everyone in there. And I, I want to make this connection between our relationships and our faith. 
the health of our relationships and the strength of our faith. Are you right with your pastor? Are you right with others? Are you right with God? Are you walking in close? Are those relationships healthy? And towards God, I think we could ask, are you growing in prayer and in dependence on him? Are you regularly putting yourself under the preaching of God's word so that you can change? Is that your habit? Are you being careful to steer clear of sin in your life? God preserves his people all the way to sanctifying them. And these relationships are ones that we can give attention to for our good and God's glory. Lord, help us to do what we ought to do, to be sensitive to his leading. In the confidence and in the hope that the God of peace himself will sanctify us entirely. He who you, he's going to bring it to the He's going to finish it. Are you going to obey him? Father, we thank you for the the tender lead that you do in our lives. And even for these reminders, we need to be right. We need to be right with our shepherd. We need to be right with you. And you've given us instruction as to how to do that. Sorts of problems. We cause all sorts of problems, Father. And Lord, as we think of that blood-bought glory, they're made of flesh and blood just like we were, like we are. They were sinners just like we like we are. It's a marvel that any of them made it there and were faithful to you. But Lord, that's a credit to your grace and your, your preservation of a person who believes. But Lord, we know that that path never deviates from You have ordained that our whole lives would be ones of growth, of putting off sin and putting on Christ-likeness. Do that. Lord, help us not to grow casual or presumptuous about our faith. Help us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because it is you who works in us, both to will and to do of your good pleasure. We need you for the help that we have in the Lord Jesus and the indwelling spirit and the word that is sure and stable. Help us to look to you and with you. Even bless our fellowship today as we have opportunity to minister to one another. May we be built up for your glory and your praise. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would take.